And greetings. Welcome to Birkegaard, the writing, the writings of Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, today we are going to make the uh, transition to the final chapter. I know, I know, you felt we'd never get there. When you take uh, Soren line by line, uh, it's it's like a pool that goes very deep. You think you know the bottom, and you don't. So the more you swim, the deeper you realize it is. Uh, so 15, conclusion, man and the eternal. Let us remember that even though Soren is considered the father of modern existentialism, uh, there was a divorce uh, soon thereafter because uh, Soren is a theist. He is a Christian. And a lot of the... Uh, a lot of his children, or people that are perceived as children, uh, philosophically speaking, are not are not Christians. They're agnostic or atheist, uh, materialist. And you have to remember that Soren doesn't allow that. Uh, people may derive meaning from Soren and not come from a Christian perspective uh, because Soren speaks the truth. Uh, so, again, use the pool analogy. They can get some, uh, some exercise and some swimming in on the water. Uh, but they're not going to truly get into the deep end with Soren until they um, embrace the theological uh, commitments and strokes that he has. Um, if man is not eternal, Soren's book ultimately goes out the window. It should just go on a on a trash pile after reading it. It has nothing eternal in it. Everything's going to decay. Everything's going to burn. Everything's going to pass away. Um, but Soren fights against that. And... Uh, he, he speaks eternal words. He speaks on behalf of God. So 15, conclusion, man in the, man in the eternal. So we're going to get that up in a moment here. And I just like to always start with a little story here, a little analogy. I am uh, very good at analogical thinking. I'm not good at mechanical thinking. I'm not good at artistic drawing things because of my visual disability. I'm decent at math. I'm good, better at statistics and inferential statistics than things like calculus. But I'm, I'm good at math. I'm not great. Uh, but my, my forte is uh, words, uh, for sure. And I was thinking, I was, uh, you know, I, I take notes on the books and I, I scratch them up and I circle stuff and I uh, underline things and make notes in the books. So it's going to be very clear if anybody ever reviews the books that I have bought of Soren's after I pass, and the shame of it, these books should really go to someone who can appreciate them. I hope they just don't get tossed in a dumpster in, a, in an act of haste, because uh, people want to save time. I hope people realize there's gold in those books. But they'll say that I, um, I truly got to know these books. I didn't just skim over the surface. Um, I really, uh, I've used this example before, I've really ingested uh, Soren's words and have allowed them to affect my dietary spirituality. A metabolic uh, sense of meaning. And uh, I use a pen. I use these Bic pens that are clear. And they're six-sided. I counted it yesterday to make sure I was correct. It's a six-sided pen. And they're clear and they're made out of plastic. And uh, they have a cap on them that you can pull off. And the ink is running down this particular pen. Now, I used it for other things before the Soren book. But once I use it, start using a, a pen for a book, I typically keep it in the cover on the, under the first um, cover on the front of the book. Just slide it in there. And so it doesn't have any ink in there anymore, or very little. I can't see it anymore. So this has passed away. This pen is passing away. And our lives in this earth are like this pen uh, that we uh, get a certain amount of time. We get a certain amount of ink. 
And we have to write our life. We have to write those words out, what our life is. And um, the more eternal that we have in the ink, the better. Uh, not just for ourselves, but for other people. Our story uh, rings more true to how reality is constructed. And it always amazes me that Christians are perceived as idiots by the intellectual type. And there are Christians that are idiots, don't get me wrong. But as a whole, there's a lot of theological tradition in Christianity that's very academic and very intellectual and very philosophical. So that's a mischaracterization of, of the faith to call it stupid or call it uh, the adherence low IQ or whatever. So a little while back, I was going back and forth with somebody online and he was asking my recommendations on a Kierkegaard book to start off with. And I said, well, Purity of Heart is typically considered one of the first books or the first book that uh, a person should read if they're not familiar with uh, Kierkegaard. Um, but there are others, and choose the one that you think is best. So the one, the book this guy got was uh, The Essential Kierkegaard, and this is a summary, or not a summary, uh, excerpts of his writings, but it's in chronological order uh, from the beginning of his writing career, uh, Soren's writing career, until the conclusion. Again, my apologies there. Um... So it takes it in a chronological order, and there's the, there is a, an order in terms of the books, in terms of the, their, the train of thought, and it's called The Essential Kierkegaard, and it's from Princeton University Press, and it was edited by uh, the Hongs, that we've talked about before, that did probably 90% of the translation of Soren's um, words and thoughts into English from the Danish. Um, and the Hongs weren't crazy about anthologies and they weren't crazy about not going to the original source like somebody talking about Soren Kierkegaard it doesn't have validity because there's a copy of that you know if you have a copy machine and you make a copy of a copy at some point the resolution begins to break down and the Hongs always felt like summarizers and popularizers about Soren can only present a certain amount of him and, and you would lack the integrity and the depth of his true his true work this is a little bit different in the sense that it's not a summary of other people's thoughts about Kierkegaard. This is, these are actual segments of books that he has written. And the Hongs did this book, The Essential Kierkegaard, towards the end of their translating career, I believe. Um, so they felt like this is kind of a primer. This is a, a primer for someone who wants to get to know Kierkegaard. And because of my approach towards Soren's writings, where I'm going to take on one book at a time, I thought it might be really helpful, like this guy decided to do, is to buy this book and get kind of an overarching picture of where Soren uh, started off at, where he went to, and where he ended up at. And just uh, some general thoughts on that just before we go. Uh, into uh, the actual chapter 15 of Purity of Heart is the will one thing. So the, uh, the, the writing I'm going to cite today to start off with uh, is from the Essential Kierkegaard. Um, it was edited by Howard and Edna Hong that made the decisions of what to include. They note in their uh, preface that Soren adopted pseudonyms as a way of adopting a perspective. It wasn't because he was afraid of being identified or anything like that or needed to protect his secrecy for some reason. But he adopted uh, perspectives through these pseudonymous writers that he personally did not agree with necessarily, but still had um, observations from their perspective. Uh, so he would choose people that were at different stages on life's way 
who present their own views in a complex dialogue, to use Soren's own words, who present their own views in complex dialogue. Soren sees himself as an author of the author, as an author of the authors, um, since Christian's own, uh, uh, Soren's own perspective, what he does. And he gets into, in his books, not just chronologically, but he goes from the aesthetic, uh, which is the first stage in life's way, uh, to the ethical, to the religious, in his own writings. His own writings follow that trajectory, not just chronologically, but also conceptually. So he starts off more as like a philosopher who is weary of life, and this is through the characters that he adopts uh, in this um, in this uh, in this book, uh, either or a fragment of life. And I'm going to read the beginning part here just to so get a taste of what this character is getting into. So this is written from the synonymous uh, pseudonym of Victor Eremitia. E <laughs> E-R-E-M-I-T-A. I tried that, the spelling bee. Victor Eretmitia. I know not. Either or, either uh, slash or a fragment of life. February 20th, 1843. So this is fairly early on in Soren's writing career. Edited by Victor E-R-E-M-I-T-A. Eretmitia. Part one containings A's papers. So this is just the beginning part of that chapter, this uh, segment that Hong selected. The anonymous uh, manuscripts found in the secret desk compartment of the editor, editor Victor Eretmita, were the papers of a witty, ironical, disillusioned young esthete, the editor called A, who had seen through everything in life and found it wanting. So we talked about last week about a theological and ministry perspective in terms of witnessing to the gospel is to first preach Ecclesiastes at, at un, the unconverted, to let them know that what they're putting their hopes in, what they're investing their soul into is not lasting if it's not eternal. And all those things that the world can offer, the power, the pride, the pleasure, uh, the possessions, all those P words, they pass away. Uh, and so this character, Victor, has admitted that. He's an esthete. So that's the first stage in life's way. It's somebody who wants to live life with a sense of satisfaction. And that's kind of what the uh, the aesthetic position is. They're not like uh, party animals or crazy nihilist. Uh, they want to have balance in their life, but they want to enjoy the good things of life. And um, this is what Victor writes in his in his book, through uh, Soren writing through Victor, the pseudonym of Victor. Granger, savoir, renoma, this is all in French, amete, placier et bien, tat en est que vent que fume, pois me dure tout en est rien. And I know I mauled that. I was up in Quebec one time and I could not pick up uh, certain. I couldn't pick up words. I could hear entire phrases, but my lack of uh, comprehension in French made it all sound like a blur. I think French is more like that than a lot of a lot of languages. But when I hear Spanish, at least I can hear the words separate to some extent. When I was in Quebec, which speaks a version of French called Quebecois, it's Quebecois people, uh, French descent who uh, sided with Britain during the uh, during the uh, Revolutionary War. <laughs> uh, the Americans didn't think that was going to happen, but it did. Uh, the British kind of 
bought off the uh, French contingent there in Quebec in that area of Canada. So this is translated as greatness, knowledge, renown, friendship, pleasure, and possessions. All is only wind, only smoke. To say it better, all is nothing. So this is what Victor says, what Soren says through Victor. So uh, Victor is disillusioned by life. He is, he is drunk and sucked the marrow out of life and found it wanting. And uh, Soren gets into this in chapter 15 because it's the conclusion, uh, colon, man and the eternal. This was the issue of the talk, but now with this individual, yes, if you, my listener, and I must admit to ourselves that we were far from living in this way, far from that purity of heart, with truthfully wills but one thing. So Soren starts off with a confession. This was... The issue of the talk, but now if the individual, yes, if you, my listener, and I miss, uh, must admit to ourselves that we were far from living in this way, from far from the uh, purity of heart, which truthfully wills but one thing. Soren has high expectations for human, human uh, beliefs and conduct. Uh, he doesn't lessen God's demands on us. Uh, he, he states them as God would. Uh, but he also has a huge reservoir of grace. Uh, so God doesn't lessen his, his, his expectations on people. He still has the law. He still has his ethical law. And he who commits the littlest sin commits them all according to the scriptures. That's what James says. If you're guilty of one part of the law, you're guilty of all of it. You can't keep the law. But the law is to drive us to grace. The law is like a prosecuting attorney. Uh, Christ is our advocate. But God doesn't lessen the law. And these two things must operate in tension. Grace doesn't really mean much if it's not in reference to something. Uh, so the standard is one thing. Our lack of meeting the standard is another. And Christ's uh, fulfilling of that standard for us is the ultimate message of the gospel. And the early uh, believers knew that because they had grown up in Judaism. They knew, they knew they didn't keep the law if they were honest with themselves. So, Soren says, we must admit to ourselves that the question demanded an answer. And yet, in another sense, in order to avoid any deception, did not require an answer, and that they were, if anything, charges against ourselves, which in spite of the form of the question, changed themselves into an accusation. And uh, that's uh, an interesting observation. You know when somebody asks us a question, but you know they're making a statement, but they hide, upon, uh, they hide uh, behind the idea that it's a question? Um, I had somebody try to do that recently to me in an interaction, interaction with a business where they were making statements and they had phrased a couple of them as questions, but the questions themselves were not factual. Uh, somebody asserted I had not done something and, and tried to ask a question about that. Well, you didn't show up for this meeting. And I said, well, I had an, an emergency with uh, a cracked tooth and I couldn't attend the meeting, but I did call ahead of time and reschedule. So it's not... It's correct in one way that you're saying, well, yeah, you missed the meeting, right? Uh, yes, I did. But it was a medical emergency, and I called to reschedule. And he asserted that I didn't attend the meeting, uh, the rescheduled meeting. I said, yes, I did. I was there the next day. So it's very dangerous to make, uh, make statements through questions if your questions are not correct. Uh, but this is a correct question that um, Soren is asking through the, uh, the dialogue here. So he sees it as a dialogue. The form of the question changed themselves into an accusation, but this individual that was making these uh, questions and these assertions through questions, I said, be careful. You don't know what you're talking about. Uh, people have to realize what I did for a living for 35 years was work in very contentious situations where the words could either come back and bless people or haunt people and haunt myself if I didn't say the right thing. And I kept copious notes on what my 
conversations with students were and other individual staff members and supervisors and I always had a, a lot of uh, documentation to provide to questions that were asked about what what I said and what I did and try to remember it all. Hey, the form of a question changed itself into an accusation. Then should the individual and you, my listener, and I join together in saying, indeed, our life is like that of most others. How then shall we begin over again at this time and once more speak of the evasion which consists of being among the many? For where there are many, there is externality in comparison and indulgent and excuse and evasion. And I, I got to think about this a little bit uh, in the context of Soren's very big on the individual. And there's a lot of reasons for that because the individual can get lost in the crowd and avoid responsibility and evade. And we see like that in mass movements where people don't feel responsible for their uh, evil behavior because the crowd is uh, bigger than the individual and allows a certain uh, projection of responsibility upon the mob. Uh, but it also there's also this other side that uh, when we are in a crowd, we can be treated more like a statistic versus like an individual, if that makes sense. Because St um, Stalin had something to, said something to the effect, and I don't have this down exactly from the Russian, but he said the death of one person is a tragedy, but the death of many people is a, is a statistic. And tyrants and totalitarian people and autocrats and um, dictators and all those type of uh, political demonic forces uh, personified by these individuals that are, are in power, uh, they could treat people like statistics and not like individuals. So it's not a tragedy. Uh, Mao's Great Leap Forward uh, killed millions of people in China. Uh, it, was a, it was an ideological battle, so the individual deaths weren't important. And the statistic is abstract. There's just so many people and so many so many skulls, you just go numb to it. Uh, it says tyrants can use this crowd against the crowd. The crowd, uh, the crowd can be destroyed uh, easily because it's uh, considered like an infestation. Or uh, my pen just ran out of ink. I had talked about that before. I knew it was coming because I didn't see the ink anymore. So I have to adopt a new pen here. But there's a certain sadness when a pen runs down, but also a certain beauty in that it means I've done some work. Uh, but we have to be careful about. Uh, participating in the crowd because that crowd can be treated as as a as a non-personal entity that can be destroyed at will. Um, now, I believe in community. I believe it's not good to be alone. I don't believe it's good to be isolated. I don't believe it's good to live by ourselves and for ourselves. We have to have friendship. We have to have fellowship. But as I've talked to you before, you come to the table as an individual. You don't come as a clone. You come as the unique person God made you with your unique perspective on the world and existence. And that in, enriches the, uh, the, uh, the palette, the color palette of the world. As I said, everybody has a story. So we come to community as diverse people. And uh, we're unified on the essentials. But in terms of all the other things that don't really matter but add color and flavor to life, there's differences. And that's a great thing. For where there are many, there is externality and comparison and indulgent excuse and evasion. Shall we even after we have come to understand the calamity of this evasion in the end take refuge in it? Shall we console ourselves with a common plight? Alas, even in the world of time, a common plight is a doubtful consolation. 
In eternity, there is no common plight. In eternity, the individual, yes, you, my listener, and I, as individuals, will each be asked solely about himself as an individual and about the um, individual details in his life. And, And God does not grade on a curve. He doesn't look at the mass of humanity and say, well, this is where behavior and conduct was, and I'm going to grade everybody according to human standards. Now, God God judges people by his standard, and we talked about that at the beginning. He doesn't lessen his standard. He just makes us uh, capable of fulfilling it through Christ. Uh, Christ um, is in us to make that standard met. If in this talk I have spoken poorly, then you will not be asked about that, my listener, nor will any man from what uh, from whom I may have learned. For if he has stated it falsely, then he will be questioned about that, and I will be made to answer for having learned from another what was false. Nor will any uh, with whom I have had an acquaintance be made to answer for. Uh, nor will any with whom I have had an acquaintance be made to answer. For if this acquaintance was corrupting, if he, his acquaintance was corrupting, then he will be questioned about that, but I shall be made to answer for having sought out or not having avoided his acquaintance and for letting myself being uh, become corrupted. Uh, we have to participate in the corruption. Nobody's truly innocent. Well, in a lot of things, there are victims, though, in the world. Um, I think in general, though, if you live in a, in a stable society that has a righteous justice system and good, good morals and conduct, uh, everybody's responsible to some degree for the choices they've made. I always believe that we should run a just school. And what I meant by a just high school is that it's fair. It's fair for everybody. Everybody has an equal chance to be successful. I didn't believe in mercy necessarily. Uh, on an individual base, basis, maybe, uh, if the conditions merited a merciful response. But I didn't think the school should be run as a merciful institution. I thought it should be run as a just institution. Because ultimately, whenever you talk about groups or systems it has to be just it has to be justice oriented Uh, mercy is an individual decision the person that is harmed the teacher that decides to forgive the late work or the counselor that decides to forgive an insult that was directed towards her him or that's when mercy comes in when when it costs something personally to to forgive Um, i didn't believe systems should be merciful i think merciful systems create the need for more mercy but in, mercy can't exist on an individual level, depending on the student's circumstances. If they are going through a hard time, then we as professionals could come together and decide to uh, provide a sense of grace or forgiveness for certain things, as long as it didn't damage the system. You have to be careful about that. It takes a lot of wisdom. Nor will any of you have had an acquaintance be made to answer for. If an acquaintance was corrupting, then he will be questioned about that, but I shall be made to answer for having sought out or not having avoided his acquaintance and for letting myself become corrupted. No, if I have spoken poorly and just so far as I have spoken poorly, then without any excuse, whatever, I as an individual will be questioned about that for an eternity. There is not the remotest thought of any common plight. In eternity, the individual, yes, you, my listener, and I as individuals be each asked solely about himself or herself as an individual and about the individual details in his life or her life. If it should so happen that in this talk I have spoken the truth and I shall be questioned no further about this matter, there will be no questioning as to whether I have won men. Quite the contrary, it might be well be asked 
whether I had any notion of having by my own efforts done the least thing towards winning them, no question as to whether by the talk I have gained some earthly advantage, quite the contrary, it might be well asked whether I had any notion of having myself done at the least thing towards gaining it, no question about what results I have produced or whether I may have produced no results at all, or whether loss and the sport that others made of me were the only results I have produced. No eternity will release me from one and all such foolish questions. In the world of time, a man can be confused if he does not know which is which. Which question is the serious one? Which is the silly one? Especially since the silly one is heard a thousand times to the serious questions once. Eternity, on the other hand, could admirably distinguish between them, yet it is obvious that the thing does not become easier on that account, the seriousness of the plight is only intensified. For in eternity, there is not the remotest thought of any common plight. In eternity, the individual, yes, you, my listener, and I, as individuals, will each be asked solely about himself as an individual. Coffee break. Oxygen break. <sighs> about the individual details of his life. If it should happen that a true reflection of life is contained in this talk, if it is uh, so that the ability and the occasion has vouchsafed me, which enabled me to set it forth, yet it may also have happened, we can suppose such a case that the circumstances under which it has uh, had, been sp had to be spoken did not seem favorable. If this were so, then eternity would... Um, not inquisitively enter into any long drawn out discourse about circumstances. Had I remained silent, eternity would hold me as an individual to account. For in the world of time, when the task is to be clever for one's own advantage, where uh, when worldly cleverness judges and criticizes, then unfavorable circumstances are not only a ground for silence. But silence becomes admired as cleverness, while favorable circumstances are an invitation for all to join in the conversation. Uh, to be silent is no excuse. I just add this uh, parenthetically. We are often guilty for the things not said, not just for the things said. On the other hand, in the eternal order, if the circumstances are difficult, the obligation to speak is doubled. The difficulty is precisely an invitation. Eternally, the individual will only be asked whether he knew that they were, an un were unfavorable, and whether in this event he dared remain silent, and therefore by silence, yes, to use the proverb by his consent, he had an individual, as an individual, contributed to a condition where the circumstances became still more unfavorable uh, for the truth. Eternally, circumstances will provide neither hiding place nor evasion uh, for him, um, for he will be asked as an individual, and the difficulty of the circumstances will stand against him as a double accusation. For remaining silent, it is not as with sleeping that he who sleeps does not sin, for in the world the individual has brought the most atrocious guilt upon himself uh, through remaining silent. The fault was not that he did not manage to get the circumstances changed. The fault was that he was silent, not out of discretion, which is silent when it is proper to be silent, but out of cleverness, which is silent because it is the most prudent to be so. Now, these days it's very, very easy to, 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 uh, 
just avoid uh, speaking up. And I have to learn to fight that battle correctly. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't like these useless conversations and these useless discussions. And when people are insulting and abusive, I check out. I just say, I'm done. I'm not here to teach you how to behave. And that happens a lot online. But there's times that you have to weigh in and you have to take it. And it takes wisdom to figure it out because it's not good to be uh, enjoying, to be a spirit that enjoys confrontation and contentiousness. It's not, it's a bad diet. But what then shall we do if the question sounds like uh, accusations? Above all else, each one will himself become an individual with his responsibility to God. Each one will himself be subject to the stern judgment of this, uh, of this individuality. Is that not is this not the purpose of the office of confession? Just as a little as a silent churchyard, the multitude of the dead make up a society, so little does the multitude of these coming to confess make up a society. For even the king comes uh, goes to confession alone in order to escape the common company of other. Those who are coming to confess do not belong together in a society. Each one is individual is an individual before God. And Soren's talking in about the office of confession, kind of like in the Catholic or Lutheran church, where one confesses the sins to the priest individually or to the or to the the minister. There is a time for group confession, but group confession, but I think the problem is when we do group confession, it's very easy to say, well, th- these are the sins of other people. They're not my sins. Um, the other people struggle against this stuff, racism, prejudice, all that kind of stuff. It's not my problem, but I'll I'll say I'll go along because I'm playing along to be a good sport. Man and wife may go to confession and beautiful fellowship with each other, but they may not confess together. This one who confesses is not in company. He is an individual alone before God. And if as an individual he admits to himself that the question which uh, by the help of of an insignificant one's whisper he puts to himself are accusations, then he confesses, for one does not confess merits and achievements, he confesses sins. Um, when one confesses, he sees once that he has no merit. So again, uh, sword does not decrease the standard. He just uh, he would just uh, tell us to throw ourselves upon the mercy and grace of Christ. Uh, he sees that merits and achievements are fantasies, and sense deception that are at home, where one moves about in a crowd and engages others in conversation. He sees that it is just on this account that the one who never himself becomes an individual is easily tempted to consider himself a more meritorious man. But the purpose of the office of confession is certainly not to make a man conscious of himself as an individual as the moment of its celebration. And then for the rest of the time to allow him to live outside of this consciousness. On the contrary, in the moment of confession itself, he should give an account as to how he has lived as an individual. If the same consciousness were not demanded of him for daily use, then the demand of the office of confession is a self-contradiction. It is as if one now and then demanded of a humble man that he should render account to himself and to God of how he had lived as a king, that he had never been a king. And so it is to ask of a man that he shall render account of his life as an individual, one allows him to lead his life outside of this consciousness. My listener, do you remember now how this talk began? Let me call back to your remembrance. It is true that the temporal order has its time, but the eternal shall always have time. And I'm reading a book right now. 
That's called Medicine for the Heart, uh, colon, Reading Scripture in Troubled Times, Soren with uh, Kierkegaard. So once again, the Medicine for the Heart, Reading uh, Scripture in Troubled Times with Kierkegaard. This is written by Dwayne Eckberg, MD. He's a doctor. It's uh, free on Kindle right now. At least it was when I downloaded it. I didn't want to buy another book, uh, hard copy. I have plenty of those. Medicine for the Heart, colon, Reading Scripture in Troubled Times. Times with Kierkegaard, written by Dwayne D W A I N Eckberg E C K B E R G M D. He's a doctor, and he talked about like how Abraham and Isaac going to Mount Moriah. That in God's eyes just happened yesterday. God uh, does not live in time, so even though time for us seems like it's long, uh, and it is in one way, it's very temporal. Uh, we are just this uh, kind of a uh, there's this kind of gap in between two eternities. In God's eyes, uh, the scriptures speak to us presently because in God's eyes, these things just happened. Uh, Jesus dying on the cross, uh, the gospel being preached, uh, Abraham walking Isaac to be sacrificed. God is in eternity, so these are just moments. These are just moments to him. Uh, thousands of years are, are like a day to God, as uh, Peter says in one of his epistles, First or Second Peter. Let me read this. But the eternal shall always have time. So God has plenty of time uh, because he's from the eternal. It's like an account. God could draw from that account. If this should not happen with a man's life, then the eternal comes again under another name and once again shall always have time. This is uh, repentance. And since at present no man's life is lived in perfection, but each one in frailty, so providence has given man uh, two companions for his journey. The one calls him forward and the other calls him back. But the call of repentance is always at the 11th hour. Therefore, confession is always at the 11th hour. We don't have as much time as we think we do. I just add that parenthetically. But now, if you can tell, I change my voice when I read uh, Soren versus when I make a comment. My my voice is different when I when I when I comment, but when I read, I read in a certain tone and a certain cadence. So hopefully that's obvious when you listen to this. But none in the sense of being uh, precipitate. For confession is a holy act which uh, calls for a collected mind. A collected mind is a mind that has collected itself from every distraction, from every relation, in order to center itself upon this relation to itself as an individual who is responsible to God. It is a mind um, that has collected itself from every distraction and therefore also from all comparison. For comparison may either tempt a man to an earthly and fortuitous despondency because the one who compares must admit to himself that he is behind many others or it may tempt him to pride because, humanly speaking, he seems to be ahead of many others. A new expression of this uh, true extremity of the 11th hour comes when the penitent has withdrawn himself from every relation in order to center himself upon his relation to himself as an individual. Um, by this, he becomes responsible for every relation in which he ordinarily stands, for he is outside of any comparison. The more use one makes of comparison, the more it seems that there's still plenty of time. The more man uh, makes use of comparison, the more indolent and more wretched his life becomes. But when all comparison is relinquished forever, then a man confesses an individual before God, and he is outside of any comparison, just as the demand which purity of heart lays upon him is outside of comparison. 
Purity of heart is what God requires of him, and yet the penitent demands it of himself before God. Yes, it is just on this account that he confesses his sins, and heavy as the way and the hour of the confession may be, yet the penitent wins the eternal. He is strengthened in the consciousness that he is an individual, and in this talk, in this task of truthfully willing only one thing, uh, this consciousness is the straight gate and the narrow way. Okay, so I think that's going to be enough for today. I hope to get further than this, but I'm going to stop here for today. This consciousness is the straight gate and the narrow way. And that is uh, a teaching from Jesus about the way to life is straight. It's a straight gate and a narrow way. Broad is the way to destruction. A broad road has a crowd on it. Uh, narrow, a narrow road by its very implication has to be somewhat solitary. It, doesn't, it can't have a ton of people on it at the same time. So there's uh, there's not much uh, there's not much left here. Uh, there's only a couple pages, and I'm looking forward to uh, to getting there and to finishing this book. I think again, that I'm going to take on the um, I'm going to take on the um, 18 upbuilding discourses next because I've already read that once, and I have notes on it already. Uh, so 18 upbuilding discourses. I'm not sure if I'm going to do the podcast. On the road, on this road trip coming up in the United States, uh, going through uh, Pittsburgh, uh, Indianapolis, uh, Chicago, uh, Minneapolis, South Dakota, Whitefish, somewhere else in Montana, uh, Spokane, uh, Salem, Oregon, which is a little bit closer to Portland, south of Portland, Sacramento, Los Angeles, Phoenix, um, somewhere else along the way, Austin, New Orleans, uh, North Carolina, and Washington D.C. Those are the those are the trips that are the stops in the trip that I already have identified. Uh, and it's going to be an adventure. I'm leaving in two weeks, uh, less than a day. So Tuesday, the twenty eighth, I shall depart and I shall return by May first. And I'm. Connecting with uh, friends and family all over the United States. So uh, it's going to be an adventure. It's going to be hard. But I, I'm a big believer in um, not procrastinating. Like I've been planning for this for a couple weeks. And to truth to be told, I've been planning to do a road trip like this for a decade. I've been buying stuff online. I have lanterns. I have stoves. I have tents. I have tarps. I have sleeping bags. I have utensils. I have plates. I have coffee makers. I have clothes, I have bags, I have containers, I have dehydrated food, and this is all stuff I already had before I actually began to plan this specific trip. Um, so uh, Soren says that we're in the 11th hour in terms of not procrastinating, and I just remember a story of, I worked with a kid at the, at the high school, a super bright kid, had a lot of issues outside of school, I won't get into the details, as to protect his anonymity. But one of the ways he coped with life is he procrastinated. He just didn't deal with stuff. And it played itself out in school of him flunking classes, frustrating teachers, not um, not graduating on time. And I, I challenged him towards the end of what was to be his senior year. He didn't graduate, so he didn't, he didn't um, walk across the stage that year. I said, uh, your uh, procrastination is, uh, is, is self-destructive behavior. It's very obvious. Like, you're not passing classes. You're, the teachers are frustrated. You're not going to graduate on time. And he denied that. He said, no, my procrastination gets me motivated. I, um, 
It gives me a sense of energy. I get stuff done. He kind of challenged my assessment. I wasn't trying to be critical. I was trying to help him. Uh, but he, uh, him and I were going back and forth online and uh, our school platform for doing so, and the teacher was involved. And <laughs> I just had to say, listen, man, I've been a counselor for 30 years. I have a Ph.D., your procrastination is self-destructive. Uh, just take that as a truism. Try and help you see that. And he, he went down fighting. He refused to concede that it was. I hope he's doing okay. I don't know. A lot of times these kids turn out okay because they're smart. But the process ain't pretty. So it's the 11th hour. And um, eternity should always have time. Uh, don't wait till tomorrow to, uh, to uh, confess God is gracious. He promises us through Christ that he does forgive our sins, but we have to bring them to him. We can't die in our sins. We have to have a clean slate. So I think the Catholics are right in one way that confession is a very, very important thing. Now, they would say you have to actually go to a priest to be forgiven. And I'm sure they have rules where that's not applicable if it's impossible or whatever, but um, I don't believe that you have to go see a physical person. We've talked about that a lot. I do believe, though, we have to keep short accounts with God. We have to come clean. And not just confess the sins, because I think it's very easy to like do the do the mechanism or the routine or the ritual of the confession, not really mean it. God expects us to get better and to be healed from our sins and to grow into life and to life abundant that He promises. So I wish that for you. Again, if you like this podcast, uh, share it with your friends and neighbors. Uh, put it online. Tell people that you've listened to it and it's help, been helpful. If you're so inclined, please put a review up or a rating, a reading and or review, onto uh, the platform you listen through. Uh, Anchor is now officially, uh, title-wise, Spotify. It always has been Spotify, but now it's specifically Spotify, and I think Anchor is going away, uh, from what I can understand. So uh, if you're on that platform or on iTunes or wherever you are please put a review and a rating a good one if you could it'd be much appreciated i think this uh, passes by word of mouth and my promise to you is i will never ask a dime from you this is given freely freely of my desire to help others discover soren and how he helps us find our our stage in life way clearly towards the religious and existential where Meaning matters. I'll leave it at that. Have a great day and see you next week. Lord willing.